Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We're going to be in a few areas of Scripture, Nehemiah chapter 5, Zechariah chapter 5, Revelation 18, and Hebrews 7. Once again, Nehemiah 5, Zechariah 5, Revelation 18, Hebrews 7. If you notice on the back, we are praying for you. And all of us have put a name on that banner that we are praying for. And so we are upping our game. And so if you have been praying for that person, now we're going to be praying that the Lord will provide an opportunity for us to share the gospel. We have about 23 days until we make that invite where they come to Christmas Eve, but we want to be in prayer for all of those names as we continue to seek the Lord on their behalf. And so let's remember that as we continue. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts. Our Father, we are so thankful for this incredible, prophetic book. That a young man could be so inspired. It doesn't surprise me that Zach would pray for our young people. For you used a young man like Zachariah, of which the apostles would quote as fulfillment to the scripture of the first coming of Christ. And if your first coming was everything Zechariah said it would be, then we must believe that there will be a second coming, just like Zechariah tells us. And that you will not come as a baby, but as a conquering king. And so, Lord, as we study this book today, would you give us insight? Would you fill us with your spirit? And would you move in us in a powerful way? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I think we need a little review being out of Zechariah for a couple of weeks. Zechariah is broken into three different parts, if you remember. The first part, which is chapters 1 through 6, are the eight visions. Eight visions given to the children of Israel, given to Zechariah for the children of Israel to inspire the nation to build the temple, to do the ministry, to do the work that God had called them. Chapters 7 and 8, we're not there yet. Well, the chapters 7 and 8, God answers a theological question in regards to fasting. And we'll get there before the holidays. Can you imagine? I'm going to be teaching on fasting before Christmas. God bless us. Maybe the Lord's trying to get a message across to us about what we should partake of over the holiday season. I'm a personal fan of chocolate chip cookies. Okay, that one landed really flat. Christmas cookies, fasting, okay, never mind. All right, third part is chapters 9 through 14. 
And in chapters 9 through 14, we're going to see the ministry of Jesus in his first and his second coming. And what we're going to see is that in his first coming, in his first coming, what Zechariah said came to pass. Everything Zechariah said came to pass, including riding into Jerusalem on the colt, a foal of a donkey. So if everything that Zechariah said came to pass of his first coming, then as we study his second coming, we will wait with great expectation and anticipation that everything Zechariah communicates is straight from the mouth of God and Jesus is coming again as the conquering king. Now, we're going to conclude our eight visions tonight. And what I'd like to do is to review these visions and put a statement on the screen to help us understand that these visions that were given to Zechariah in one night, they were to encourage the nation to get busy about the work that God had called them to do. And in the same right, though Israel and the church are two complete entities, they can't, they're not merged in the sense of the church replacing Israel in the book of Zechariah. No, no, no. But these visions are an encouragement to the church for us to be busy about the work that God has called us to. And what God is going to do in these visions is reveal eight things about himself that should encourage us. Vision. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. the Bible says, where there is no vision the people perish. Vision is a huge part of the church. We have a vision to reach LA. We are starting with a name that's on a banner because revival doesn't come all of a sudden in the sense of, no, it begins in one heart that you know that you share the gospel. That's my vision. And my prayer is that we will see that vision come to pass. And like Habakkuk says, though the vision tarries, wait for it. It will surely come to pass. Would you prefer I was a pastor with no vision? Would you prefer that I didn't desire to see the nation of Iran come to Christ? Would you prefer that I didn't desire for the USA to win the World Cup? I actually am now hoping for Senegal. I've changed my... Don't throw anything at this point. The first three visions. In the first one, we saw horses go out into the world, the vision of the horses. And what God wanted people to know is that he was working behind the scenes to provide the environment to do the work. When the horses went out, the work of God in the world, when the, when the riders went out, they came back and said, the whole world is at peace in the first vision. In the second vision of horns or authority, God wanted the children of Israel to know, I, bring, I am bringing down the enemies that are against you. You can build this temple. Don't worry about the enemies. I've got them under my control. The vision of the measuring line or the tape measurer maybe is an easier way for us to understand. He lets us know that Jerusalem is going to be built. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And I'm going to protect you 
so that you can accomplish the work that I've called you to do. Why do you think Jesus prayed, deliver us from the evil one? Because God is a protector. He's a shepherd of sheep. Going into the fourth and fifth visions, you remember there were two leaders. There was Joshua the priest, and there was Zerubbabel the prince. And these visions, the fourth and fifth, the first to Josiah, excuse me, to Joshua. Joshua was filthy and dirty rags, and God wanted the people to know, though you are sinful and have nothing to say, you're guilty, I can redeem you. And I can take your broken life and completely transform it by my grace. That's what he wanted people to know. Then in the fifth vision, Zerubbabel. Oh, the mighty prince. He's looking at the rubble of the temple. How in the world am I going to build this mountain of rubble? God reminds him, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I will empower you by my spirit to do the work. Isn't that wonderful, church? That all of the things that God has asked us to do, he has given us the power of his spirit to do the work. You're not on your own. He didn't leave you as orphans. He sent you the helper. He has sent you the counselor. He has sent you the one that will guide you into all truth. How many of you are so thankful that he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit so that when you go into your job, you go into your school, you are doing things that you never thought you could say or do? That's the Spirit of God. Going into the sixth through the eighth vision, we had the vision of the flying scroll. Oh, you know, the airplane that flies over the beach to let you know that this event that's happening or this event is happening. But this wasn't an event announcement. No, this was the Ten Commandments, four on one side and six on the other. This flying scroll, it was God letting them know, I'm going to point out areas in your life that need to change. I'm God. And I will receive you as you are but I am going to transform you into the image of my son. You see, God is concerned about our holiness, not necessarily our happiness. Happiness is not the root. Holiness is the root by which happiness will bud from. Church, while we are busy about doing the work of the ministry... You have to remember, he announces to them that they were liars and they were thieves. Thieves? Oh, Malachi lets us know. They had stolen from heaven. They were not tithing. They were not bringing their tithes to the storehouse. And God says, test me in this. See if I won't blow you away if you just choose to be faithful. Now, that was the Chet version of the book of Malachi. But they were also liars. They were misrepresenting the name of God. Now, we learned what that meant, name. It doesn't necessarily mean a title. It means a character. It means a conduct. It means a behavior. They were not acting like God. They were acting like Babylonians. But this vision in Zechariah chapter 5 was not just for them. This vision was for us. 
Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. We'll pick it up right there in verse 3 just as a measure of review. Then he said to me, Zechariah chapter 5 verse 3, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled. Zechariah chapter 5. This is the curse that goes out over the whole earth. The whole earth. You see, this vision is not just for them. It wasn't just for the Jews of the land. This vision is a prophetic vision that God was going to judge the entire world and we discovered that to be during the seven-year tribulation. We know it to be Jacob's trouble. And what this vision does is set us up for the last two to understand the first three and a half years and the final three and a half years, the seven years of tribulation, which will be described in the next two visions. We get to the seventh vision. We studied it last week. Oh, this was the woman in the basket. An unusually large-sized basket that had a lead metal lid on top of it. The same metal that was used, the same lids that were used to measure out the gold on one side and how heavy it weighed as to how much it was worth. This represented commercialism and materialism. And what God wanted the people to know is, I will not allow the way of the world to represent the way of the word. You can't come back into Israel acting like a Babylonian. You've got to be a person of God. And what they did was they brought back commercialism and they brought back materialism. Now, if you would, go back with me to Nehemiah chapter 5 and let's see how big the problem actually was. Nehemiah chapter 5 And there was a great outcry, verse 1, of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Verse 2 of chapter 5, Nehemiah. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. These people were dying of starvation in the midst of a famine. There were also some who said, We've mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Verse 4. There were also those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's taxes on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. They had just come out of being slaves, and now they're making their own people slaves. Some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. Nehemiah speaking, I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to him, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we've redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, Will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because the reproach of the nations are enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. 
Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. Look what they took from them. Everything. And a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you've charged them. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. Then we will do as you say. Church, let me tell you what's going on. Jews come back from Babylon and they're used to money. They're used to materialism. They are used to being commercialized. It was all about the money, so much so they brought the Babylonian way of credit, which was against the law to a fellow Jew, back to Israel, and people could not pay their debt back except they went into slavery. God said, no way. And he sent Nehemiah to deal with this. I need to stop for just a minute. Money's not bad. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Paul warned Timothy about people that are in the church for the sake of financial gain. They're looking at the crowd. (laughs) Calvary Chapel South Bay has got a few hundred people that meet on Thursday night. I've got a good old pyramid scheme that can work at Calvary South Bay. It can pay everything at Calvary South Bay. And how much money are you going to make from it? You see, the church is not the place to make money. The church is the place that gives with a cheerful heart. That's the church. You see, we've got to understand that in the church, when churches use the church to make money, the Bible says they will not progress. And we've seen many tele-evangelists and their ministries come to an end because it was all about the money. And I know it probably didn't start there, and I know it's not all tele-evangelists. And uh, God forgive me for putting out anything on anyone's heart outside of the fact that we have seen God bring down ministries when it's all about the money. And what God does is he calls this wickedness. And he ejects it from the land. These two female stork figures. Now, stork was a, 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 an unclean bird according to Jewish law. And they come and they take this woman in this basket and they put the lead on it and they tack it, take it all the way back to Babylon. I'm taking it all the way back to where it comes from. Look at Zechariah. If you would, go back there with me. Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. I want to pick it up there in verse 10 as we conclude uh, two weeks ago the message. Zechariah chapter 5 verse 10. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where where are they carrying the basket? Verse 11, he said to me, to build a house in it for the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Now, when it says we're going to set this basket on a base, what I need you to imagine is a monument, like the Statue of Liberty. And the Statue of Liberty is placed on a pedestal, on a base. And what they're saying in this 
modern day vernacular in the book of Zechariah is that they were setting up something to be worshipped, something to be placed so that everyone can look up and go, oh, there is the basket. Oh, I know that seems ridiculous. Can you imagine if I came to your home and when I came to your home, And there was a little basket with a light on it. And every time you passed that basket, you went like this, oh, to the basket. And then you came came walking on. What about that couch that I can't sit on? The basket. What about that carpet that you can't walk on? The basket. That china we don't use. The basket. And I want us to stop for a minute because we'll look at this and go, I can't believe they would put a basket on a pedestal and worship it. We've got to stop for a minute and think about our possessions. What do we have that's ours and not God's? So when we lived in Liberia, you guys know Kit Kat is like my favorite chocolate, right? Okay. We couldn't get Kit Kats all the time. Okay? We couldn't get them. It was war. So when they would come into town, I would buy boxes. I would clean the store out. Then you know what I would do? I would hide them in my bin underneath all my clothes so none of my children could find them. The basket. And I know that we're going to look at the children of Israel and go, I can't believe you were so materialistic. I can't believe you brought commercialism into the place of God. But we've got to look at our own lives. We've got to look at our own cars. Some people spend more time washing and vacuuming their car than they do in prayer per week. We've got to stop and think about our own lives as to what we worship. And you'll know what you worship by where you spend your time and where you spend your money. Now, I've confessed before. I have a basket. It was the DeWalt section at Home Depot. And every time I'd walk by it, the basket. Church, stop for just a moment. Now, this vision is not just for them. Remember, this vision is for us. Take a look back at verse 11. And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar when it is ready. You see, this vision was for them, but this vision is also for us. It's introducing us to the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Now, take a look at the slide just as a measure and a manner of understanding of what Zechariah is helping us understand, okay? So, if you remember, there is going to be the rapture of the church. Amen? Amen? Then, sometime later... There will be a signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist, a 
incredibly powerful political figure who is a genius, good-looking, speaks well. He's not like Mr. (laughs) Man. He is a genius, this guy. He will sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, initiating on that day seven years of tribulation. The first three and a half years are known as tribulation or the beginning of sorrows. The second three and a half years are known as the great tribulation. They open with three woes. Woe, woe, woe. Now, if God from heaven goes woe, like the whole earth should shake, it actually does. It's called the great tribulation. Now, go back to the first three and a half years. Because this woman going to set up this basket that's going to be set on a pedestal and be worshipped, materialism, economic power, oh, and commercialism, it's just going to be worshipped in that first three and a half years. And the man, the Antichrist is going to bring just economic success. I mean, Wall Street's going to go through the roof if Wall Street even exists. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there is no United States in the book of Revelation. And so I know there's an eagle mentioned, but just because there's an eagle, doesn't mean that our national bird is in the Bible, okay? And so, in this first three and a half years, there's going to be like this radical economic success. I'll prove it to you. Revelation 6, 6. Take a look. Revelation chapter 6, verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius. So a denarius was a full day's work to buy a loaf of bread, Okay? So let me put this in modern day vernacular. Go buy some bread for a full day's work and three quarts of barley for another full day's work. Okay? Barley's like, go buy some cereal for another full day's work. So go buy some Wheaties for a full day's work. Just a little box of Wheaties. But don't and do not harm the oil and the wine. Because let me tell you something about war. War has broken out in Revelation chapter 6, and I've lived through war, and I'm going to tell you about war. The poor get poorer, and the rich get richer. That is a truth about war. And what happens here is war ensues because the economic power knows that if war ensues, the poor people will get poorer, and the rich people will get richer. The oil and wine is a representative. Don't touch the rich people. Don't touch the oil and the wine. Let them get richer and richer and richer. Take a look at this, Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18. He causes all, both small and great, rich, poor, free, and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, speaking of the Antichrist or the beast, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is? Some of us are like, can we say that in church? It's in the Bible, okay? He causes all to take the mark, and you can't buy or sell. He wants to control the worldwide economy. That's the goal. Wealth. Not political, let me help us all do kumbaya. The sole goal of the Antichrist is to be the richest person in the world. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. I'm going to show it to you even further. Revelation chapter 18. 
We have now approached the end of the seven years of tribulation in Revelation chapter 18. Let's take a look at what the world responds when Babylon, the economic power, falls. Okay? Revelation 18. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Just imagine what John was witnessing, this this incredible angelic being, and all of the earth is filled with light. He cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. In other words, every false doctrine is in Babylon. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. In other words, they've joined intimately with her philosophy and her thinking And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works." In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and will not see sorrow. (laughs) Take a look what God says. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Since you're so prideful, let me watch you come down quick. Death and mourning and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Look at verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxurious with her will weep and lament for her. Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. For no one buys nor sells their merchandise anymore. Go with me to verse 19. They threw dust on their heads. They cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 is a representation of the economic doctrine. The wealthier you are, the wiser, the smarter, the better you are. Let me tell you a little story. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. Jesus tells the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, the dogs used to lick Lazarus's source. Gross. Right? Like, really? That was your hospital? Fido? You know, it's like, are you kidding me? You're sitting down the door and it's like, I'm, I'm, that's what happens? My son told me one time, I'm actually going to tell you his name. I'm going to tell on him because when you meet him, I want you to deal with it. He said, Dad, don't worry. His name is Micaiah. He said, Dad, don't worry. When you get old, I will buy a German shepherd and he will care for you. I'm like, what do you mean? How will I bathe? He'll lick you. 
okay, I'm not living with you, okay? I'm living with one of my daughters who will take care of me. Can you imagine this is your hospital? You've got a dog that comes up and licks your sores. They both die because you know there's a truth about life. We all die. And the rich man, he gets separated from God. Lazarus gets ushered into Abraham's bosom. Now, this is Jesus telling the story. And the rich man is like, could you please just dip your finger in the water and touch my tongue? I'm tormented in these flames. So all of these new Christian cults that are coming up with the concept that there is no hell, they're liars. Because Jesus tells a story about a man who is tormented. And I believe there was a real man who was rich and a real man who was Lazarus. And Jesus was using a current event of two guys that died to express their eternal destiny. But Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, comforted. You see, there is a truth. And the truth is not the fact that money is bad. We've just got to be careful that we're not controlled by money. But that we realize that we are stewards of faith, that we are stewards of what God has provided, and what he's entrusted us with, we are responsible for. We're responsible for. So, there was a lot of commercialism, a lot of materialism, and the world is sad and mourning because they've lost their money. Do you remember when Wall Street, when the stock market crashed? Do you remember when people were jumping out of buildings? When they were committing suicide because they lost their portfolios? You see, when money is your God, you'll never have enough And when it's gone, your life is not worth living. And so we see it in our day. Now you would think, with all the things that are going on in the book of Revelation, that the people would like repent. They're mourning the loss of their money. Now I want you to, if you would, take a look at the screen. I want to show you what the people are doing instead of repenting. They're mourning the loss of their money because commercialism and materialism was the power of the world. Look, and men were scorched with great heat. They knew us from God. They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. They're so upset with God that God took away their money. They're raising their fists at God. We know it's you and we hate you. Give me back my money. That's materialism and commercialism what it can do. Now take a look at the next vision. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 5 because now we're going to enter into now we're going to enter back into the next portion of the prophecy right here in uh, Zechariah chapter 6. Then I turned and I raised my eyes and I looked and behold four chariots were coming from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. 
And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Now remember the eight visions. Zechariah is encouraging the children of Israel about building the temple. And in this vision, God wants them to know, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. And if you remember in vision one, he made it very clear that he was going to judge the nations that came against Israel. Now in vision eight, we are going to see God fulfill what he said he was going to do. I'll take a look if you would. Then I saw two mountains. Now I believe, sanctified guess, that the two mountains that Zechariah saw, just like he was in the myrtle trees of the Kidron Valley, that he was looking at the two mountains, Mount Zion and Mount of Olives. Because the valley in between the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion, that valley is known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat means Jehovah shall judge. And these mountains were bronze mountains, which means judgment. The altar of God was made of bronze. Blood would be put on the horns of the altar to atone for the people's sins so that they would not receive the judgment of God. And so these two mountains, I believe, are Mount of Olives, Mount Zion, this valley of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Jehovah shall judge, bronze being the symbol of judgment. Now for the horses, we should be very familiar with them, because if you remember, in our first vision, we were introduced to them. But there's something different. Now they are carrying chariots. In the first vision... God told them, go out and see what's going on in the earth. They came back and they said in the first vision, the whole world is at rest, promising the children of Israel, okay, go ahead, build the temple. The whole world's at rest. But now these horses, they've got chariots. They're no longer on reconnaissance. They're going to war. And that chariot represents the action of war. And if you'll notice, look with me, Verse 5, and the angel answered and said to me, these are four, the f- four spirits of heaven, or the four winds of heaven. And winds is a, just, you need to think about cat five hurricanes and how destructive they are, okay? These are the winds of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the, the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward them, the south country. Then the strong seeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. Now we know who these horses are, but basically we've got the black horses and the white horses going north, and we've got the dappled horse going south. What about the red horse? Hold on to that thought for just a moment. Two horses going north, one horse going south. Let's remember that Israel is the apple of God's eye. And the Bible revolves around the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel's perspective. Let me give you an example. God has a perspective from heaven. He calls the Antichrist the beast. 
And the reason he calls the Antichrist the beast is because he's a devourer of men's souls. So heaven has a perspective and gives a term so that we can understand the way God views things. Well, God views the world with Israel in the center and the rest of the world. Israel is the apple of God's eye. And so with these two horses that are going to the north, one is going to Babylon, the enemy of Israel, and one is going to Assyria, the other enemy of Israel. Assyria took captive the northern kingdom. Babylon took captive the southern kingdom. But there's another horse that is going to the south, and the other enemy of Israel is Egypt. Now remember, God made a promise. You're going to see it on the screen. It comes from our first vision. God used these nations to judge Israel. And in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 5, I want you to see I am exceedingly God's perspective. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. These nations had evil intent. They wanted to destroy Israel. God was going to use them, the nations, to discipline Israel, but they went beyond what God had intended, and they had evil intent. Now, God is a just God, and he's going to repay their evil intent on themselves, and they are going to be destroyed. And so the horses with chariots go off to war to Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. The horses go off to Assyria, and guess what? Assyria doesn't exist anymore. And the horses are going, the horse goes down to Egypt, and we will see the nation of Egypt... Read the book of Isaiah. See what happens to the nation of Israel, the enemy of God's people. It will be destroyed. God brings judgment on the nations. But this vision is also prophetic. Not just for them to encourage them that I'm going to bring an end to the people that wanted to destroy you. That is one truth of this vision. But this vision is also prophetic. Because we see these horses again in Revelation chapter 6. Bonus verse. Would you go there with me? Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We will see these horses again. The judgment determined by God on the Gentiles in the first vision, is now being divinely executed. The times of the Gentiles are coming to an end, and God goes to war against the nations. The first, take a look, if you would, Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to pick it up there in verse 3. Excuse me, I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and behold and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is the Antichrist. He's got a bow with no arrows, riding on a horse, showing himself to be victorious. Verse 3, 
When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, another horse, fiery red went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. This is war, blood represented by the red horse. Take a look at the next. When he opened, verse 5, the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius, and a three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. The black horse represents death. People will be dying of starvation because that's the aftermath of war. Now take a look at the next, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the four living creature say, the creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse or a dappled horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. Church, we see these horses again in the seven year tribulation. Now, what I'd like for you to do is go back with me to Zechariah chapter, go back with me to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6, we're going to pick it up there in verse 7. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 7. Then the strong steeds went out eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go and walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. At the end of tribulation, God is going to tell these warriors to go back and take a look at their work. They're on reconnaissance again. And they will note their victory. Look at verse 8. And he called to me and he spoke to me saying, See those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. We've got to go back to Zechariah 1.15. Take a look at the screen again. I'm exceedingly angry, God speaking, with the nations at ease. The nations are at rest. God's not at rest. The nations are at rest. They feel secure with their money, their commercialism, their materialism. We've got everything. We don't need God. For I was a little angry, and they helped. So now he's speaking about Israel. I was angry with Israel, and they helped me. But they had evil intent. Now, if you look at Zechariah chapter 6, verse 8, who's at rest? He says, my spirit is at rest. You see, the nations were at rest and God was angry with them for what they did. So God gives them what they wanted to do to Israel and destroys them. And now God says, I'm satisfied. I'm at rest. I'm a just God. Now God is at ease because he has victory over them. And at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we refer to this as the battle of Armageddon. When the nations will rise against God and Jesus will show up at the end of seven years and bring an end to the persecution of the Jews and reveal himself as the Messiah to the entire world. Can I tell you something about the end? God wins. The end is that God wins. 
And so in this vision of chariots, we see the great tribulation, the final three and a half years where God pours out his wrath on people that are raising their fist at God, mad that he took their money. They don't repent. They refuse to repent. Now at the end of seven years, we know that we engage and we enter into the millennial kingdom. We've got the book of Revelation. But take a look as we close here in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives. So he's speaking to Zechariah, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jedediah, who have come from Babylon. So they were captives, they're coming back. And go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. In other words, these three friends come to their friend Josiah, and they're coming to spend some time, and they've brought some silver and gold. Look at verse 11. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay. Some of you should be a little concerned when you read this, and I'm sure Zechariah was. You see... God lets Zechariah know, hey, there's three guys coming to town. They're bringing some gold and silver. They're probably bringing it to help build the temple. And these three guys, the first guy is Hilday, the second guy is Jed, uh, to, uh, Tobijah, the third guy is Jedediah. Zechariah, I want you to receive the gift that they have. You've got to go to Josiah's house, and I want you to receive the gift they had. Now, Zechariah was probably concerned because Hilday's name, okay, Hilday's name means worldly. So God had to tell him, I want you to go ahead and receive this gift. Even though Hilde may be a little worldly, I want you to go ahead and receive this gift, okay? So he says, receive the gift. Then I want you to make a crown out of it. Take the silver and gold and put it together and make a crown. And I want you to put it on Joshua's head. Now, if you're Zechariah and you're a good Jew, you know the high priest does not wear a crown because he's not the king. He's the high priest. And any king that tried to be the high priest, they got punished by God. Ask Uzziah. So God separated politics from spiritual things. He separated them. I don't want the king doing the high priest work, and I don't want the high priest doing the king's work. So Zechariah's thinking to himself, wait a second. You want me to make a crown. Don't you want me to put it on Prince Zerubbabel's head? That would make sense. Why would you want me to put it on the high priest's head? God takes the time to explain. Foreseeing Zechariah's confusion, verse 12, speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now remember, we were introduced to him in Zechariah 3.8. He's the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the branch of Jesse. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Halem, Tobijah, Jedediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. In other words, thank God for them. They brought the gift so that you could do it. 
Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. You got three guys. God speaks to their heart. You got some extra gold. Take it to Jerusalem. They have no idea why they're about to make a months-long journey. But God has a special calling on their life. They are going to develop the symbol of the Messiah. They get there, Zechariah, no coincidence, because there are no coincidences with God. He hears from God to go to Josiah's house, take the gold and silver from these three guys. It's going to be a credit for them for all that they did in being obedient to God's voice. Though they didn't understand, though they didn't know what was going on, though they were a little confused about what all of this meant, because the crown goes on the prince's head, not on the high priest's head, until you realize that this was to be a sign and a symbol of the coming Messiah in the second coming who will be both prophet, priest, and king. You see, Jesus is the one that will rule and reign. Jesus is the one who is going to put on the crown as the only priest worthy, our high priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses as the God-man. He will wear that throne. He, excuse me, he will wear that crown. And they be, this becomes a symbol of the rule and reign of Christ after the seven-year tribulation. Zechariah had no idea what he was writing or doing. Thank God for the Apostle John who gives us a further explanation of these things. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for our priestly king, Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful that he wears the crown as our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And now we ask in the name of Jesus that you would use this word of ours to encourage and to and word of yours to encourage and inspire us. Because Lord, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we can get discouraged. Sometimes we can forget Tempted by sin, even complacency, our own comfort, our own materialistic ways, we can forget you're coming again. And we should be watching and waiting for your return. We should be seeking after you. And so, Lord, we're here on a Thursday night. To make our path straight. With the encouragement from the book of Zechariah. That you came. And that you will come again. And that you will be our high priest. Our king. Where faith will be realized. And hope will be seen. And where your church rules and reigns with you. I pray in Jesus' name.
Lord, fill this church with the power of your Spirit so that we can be today what we will be in our future. Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.